Abolitionist for Everybody is a podcast that tackles the sometimes difficult conversations around prison abolition. I'm Ra. And I'm Lee. We're excited to talk about the possibilities and realities of abolition in today's world with you. Join us for a friendly talk, sometimes with guest experts. Just a reminder, friends, in this episode and every episode, we talk about very sensitive and often personal issues. Take care of you. I'm really excited to be joining y'all. Uh, and there's sound, it feels like you have a flow. Your voices, you know, balance off each other. So I'm I'm excited to be in this combo. There's a lot of energy to the to the room too. I can just feel it from here. I don't know if it's the flowers going on behind you, but whatever. <laughs> like you have really great energy. Thank you. And we're gonna talk about decrim. So I'm gonna say drugs, JK. <laughs> um, JK and not JK. Okay. Um, and my name is Eunices Hernandez, uh, she, her, hers. I'm the co-executive director and co-founder of a C4 nonprofit called La Defensa. And I have never been incarcerated, but I have had a lot of loved ones incarcerated in regular jails and prisons and immigration jails, a lot of times for drugs and drug use. So yeah, this is very near and dear to me. So we've had like other conversations around like the decriminalization of drugs. And I know that there's other other topic along those lines. While I was inside a Unisys, I was inside for 25 years since I was 17 years old. And then 25 years later, I was able to extract myself from, from that situation. I did a lot of work with folks inside and drugs was like a common denominator for of sure. what was going on in their lives before incarceration. And even while they were incarceration, I personally had a an issue with marijuana kind of growing up. I was surrounded by alcoholism. I was surrounded by, you know, people that were addicted to methamphetamine, cocaine, those types of um, substances. And it always came down to there was so much going on in their lives that that was the way that they were able to numb it. Right. And the same thing with me, I was having so many traumas that were going on in my life that marijuana was like the thing that kind of like slowed my life down for me. I started smoking like I'm embarrassed to admit this, but like at the age of seven. Um, and so I was like very, very young, smoking cigarettes, smoking marijuana, taking sips of alcohol from the family members. And it it really became like a dependent for me to be able to say, you know, I not only fit in with the people that were around me, but I also was able to kind of like forget about the things that were also going around me. And so when I went into prison, you know, that was something that I've noticed like right off. Did you have that same experience, Ron? Oh yeah, absolutely. Drugs were center point in people's experiences, whether or not they led to anything or whether they were response to trauma, I think was the most common. I mean, I was obviously was in a women's facility. So a lot of the main source traumas were loss of a child, similar type of things. And many of those were self-treated with drugs and in jail, particularly because you see the come downs still, you know, after someone's in prison for some time, there's less access, but in jail, particularly you'd come in on a pretty, pretty bad high. And, uh, I had no experience with any, any kind of drugs. I didn't drink at all. And, um, it, it was shocking. <laughs> I learned a lot really fast. You had right. to learn a lot really fast. Yeah. People were going through withdrawals around you. And yep. right. And it, I, I don't know. I was fascinated by the conversations around drugs in this country and how we deal with them. And even even the people inside I know who who were addicted were fascinated by the concept of decriminalization, particularly like in countries that are doing that more and more. You've had some personal experience visiting 
some of those countries and obviously implementing that work here, what, what does the vision of that look like? I mean, it, I've been to Portugal where, you know, they have criminalized drugs and then they reversed their ways. But like to take a step back real quick is that their laws were criminalizing folks for different things. Our drug laws are racist. And that's why they came out. And that's why they were created like, you know, the, the prohibition against marijuana. When you look at traditionally the way that folks were sentenced with crack and cocaine, essentially it's the same drug. But at the federal level, before Obama came in, the sentence was 100 to 1 in disparities. Even if you had the same amount, you would get the punishment would be 100 times more if you had crack. And Obama only changed it to 18 to 1. In California, it took us 10 years to make it equal. And so that's where I want to like let us start off with that in, in Portugal, you know, a lot of the folks that are criminalized now are African immigrants, but you know, when they started changing their trajectory from criminalizing people who use drugs, a lot of the drug users were white. A lot of the drug users were European. And so they created this model where a person goes in front of like a group of clinicians, doctors, and, you know, they talk with the person and say, okay, there's different areas where we can get, get you treatment, but there's no criminalization of, of the drug use. What we still see, though, is like, especially African immigrants being like kind of forced into drug treatment, right? Like, none, like none of, when I say like forced, I mean coercion. Like there's programs where you can go in, like they're harm reduction based, they meet people where they're at. But what you see in Portugal is really a system shifting from criminalizing folks to not criminalizing them, putting them in front of healthcare clinicians and getting them into services. There are a couple of things that are missing from that model that don't make it as impactful, such as the leadership of people directly using drugs or that have formerly used drugs. You know, they call on those people, but they don't put them in leadership roles to keep informing, you know, the process of drug treatment. And so I, I will say it was fascinating to see how, you know, they had different places where people could go to treatment throughout like the little area that we traveled in, in, in uh, Lisbon. Yeah. Lisbon, Portugal, that there was plenty of places where you can just walk up and get clean, clean syringes. You can get food. And it was great. Like there's places you can sit down and we have like some spots here, but it's uh, pretty wild how they shifted um, their mechanisms. And also it was really driven also by the overdoses that were happening to white folks in, in, in Portugal around drug use. And we're like, oh, you know, white people are dying of drug use. Like, how, what, what do we need to do? How do we figure this out? And it's like, well, let's get them access to treatment. So um, I will say there's a huge difference in that, but they're, they're doing it good. And in Spain, they never even criminalized drug use, you know? So they didn't, haven't had to reverse course. They just you know, ticket people or give, or give them access to services. Yeah. I think the introduction of like drugs in, into people's lives happen in, in many ways. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and obviously the introduction of these harm reduction centers or these alternative methods, at least alternative to United States in dealing with folks that have addiction to drugs. I feel like it's starting to be examined more and more because we can't continue to do the same thing over and over and expect different results, right? It, the criminalization of of drug use and, and folks that are continuously battling their own personal demons and their mm -hmm. own personal addictions in the way that we deal with it, just it just doesn't work. And so to hear other stories about the way that other countries are doing, and I know that we talked about prison and we've talked about Norway, and now we're talking about Portugal and we're talking about how they deal with their Mm -hmm. criminalization of drug use. It's really this holistic approach. And I think that goes back to like the points that we've had before about abolition. You know, everybody has their own ideas, but it, 
and the commonality of it all and the bottom line of it all is like, we want to come from a place of kindness, caring, understanding, empathy, and love, right? And as long as we can continue to approach these issues that are happening within our communities with those foundational like morals and principles, I think we're going to be fine moving forward, but it's going to take more people like a Unisys to be able to kind of like bring these different perspectives to the table and like people that are impacted by them. Cause she was talking about like in Portugal, right? They don't have folks in leadership roles actually leading these programs that have dealt with those circumstances themselves. And I think that's a big thing about like IJ and what IJ does is people that are directly impacted by incarceration are the people that are actually in the leadership roles. It's super important. And can you talk a little bit more? I would love to hear about like your take on having folks and why it's so important for folks to be at the table that are directly impacted or that have that experience. You know, in Portugal, like a lot of the folks who were directly impacted were the ones doing the labor day in and day out, right? So they're out in the streets, they're out in the forests, literally connecting with folks and had really good solutions to say, you know what? I went through treatment through this Portugal model, but it didn't help me even get off of like medicated assisted treatment. So there's a lot of gaps that people who don't use drugs, like you're not going to see what's missing or what could help. I think this goes for the whole system, right? Like people directly impacted, you know, are closest to the solutions because they've lived it. And it's the same for drug use. Like if you've never gone through withdrawals, if you've never, you know, had a, an issue with substance use, whether it was alcohol or any type of drug, like the way that it consumes your mind, you know, and dictates your every move, like that is real. But it's also like the mindset that helps develop the, the most innovative solutions, right? Like the solutions that uh, folks who, who aren't in, like using drugs or aren't, haven't been impacted, don't have even an inkling of. Like their solutions aren't what we've seen in the past, things that have failed, things that we've done for decades. But what we're starting to see now, especially that folks are getting in, like IJ is investing in folks in their leadership. Now we're starting to see even better policies come out, even though CJ reform has been happening for a while now, right? And same in Portugal, like once they started relying more on people who use drugs to like inform their program, like that it did eventually get better. But folks have to be put in leadership roles to make sure that that also it's a career pathway, right? Like you're not just used for the labor. You're not just used to speak, but like that you get to actually inform what this institution looks like from the get go. And mm -hmm. it's a game changer, especially we've seen it uh, like change the game also in L.A. with the alternative to incarceration work. Measure J. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, like how you see that relating to the work we're doing here. You know what we can do. I know you were involved in um, Prop 64 and, and your work with La Defensa kind of goes to this as well. I think kind of everything, everything you do centers back to this point. How can we do that here? How can we make sure we build a, a more robust model like you keep talking about? The robust model. We have that model. We just, there just hasn't been the political will to invest in it. And I'll, and I'll talk a little bit more about that model, but you uplifted a Prop 64. And I think that's important because a lot of folks saw that as the golden standard of marijuana legalization. And I was a part of the campaign but looking back and doing an analysis, like the people that wrote the law weren't people who were directly impacted. The people who wrote the law weren't buying weed every day in, in, in like dispensaries, right? Like they weren't consuming. So when I look back at Prop 64, it helped us get hundreds of people out of the state prisons. It helped us get thousands of people out of the county jail systems. But 
it reinforced carving people out who have serious offenses from not being able to benefit. And also the level of taxation makes it impossible for people to buy weed. Like you have three layers of tax on, on this particular substance. And it's important to bring up because they're Oregon just decriminalized. California is talking about putting a ballot initiative in 2024 to decriminalize drugs. But if it is anything like the process that informed Prop 64, then they're going to fail because it's lawyers, it's these academics, right, that have the capacity because they've had the privilege of knowing how to write ballot language from the from the get, like, that are informing this. And so I, as much as I am proud of Prop 64 and all we've done, like, it could have been a lot better. It directly impacted people who were at the table saying, yes, we understand you want to collect taxes, but we would not never be able to afford, you know, this level of taxation, or this is going to create a continuation of, of an underground underground market. So that's what I say about Prop 64, a lot to say. <laughs> no, and it was a big moment, like mm-hmm. in not only like California, but LA, um, and especially like Measure J, like, this was like a real moment as people started to open their eyes to abolition and what it and what it means mm-hmm. um and the prohibition and like i know you talked a little bit about that and we can go all the way back to like alcohol like the prohibition of alcohol right. and and these things it's like until there is people that are like brave enough to step up and this is why it's so important with the institute of impact the leaders this is why it's so important for ij when we're teaching folks inside about the legislative process and about how to write these bills and how to how to get involved in their communities because civic engagement is truly the solution to be able to break down a system that is built around oppression and racism, right? We cannot break these down without being able to have a seat at that table, without being able to go to these meetings, without being able to talk to the people that are in power and become those people in power to be able to listen to the folks in our community members in a more clear and concise way. And so when we're talking about Measure J, like I know for for one, like not only were the folks inside talking about it a lot, but everybody on social media was talking about it. I don't go on social media and I was still hearing about it (laughs) because through my girlfriend, through family members, through loved ones. And, you know, there's the other side, I guess, or the people that I feel like they haven't had their awakening yet that don't know about like the importance of, of starting to decriminalize and to move the money away from the folks that are directly responsible for oppressing you and your community. They're like creating more harm in your community than your community members by far. And so to be able to kind of see or hear the folks from that other side was like wholly important because it started to like blur the lines and started to move people over into the space of like, oh yeah, we should invest more money into our communities. We should like we shouldn't have, you know, officers running around with body cameras and assault weapons and tanks in our communities, right? This isn't the solution on on how we actually create safer communities for one another. It's at the onset of creating these programs. And I would love for you to talk more about these programs and how it connects to um, abolition and what we're doing for folks that abolition is like the demonized word. And they're like, oh, no, I can't like that's that's too scary. We can't talk about abolition, but we can talk about the programs that actually connect to abolition. And so if I can meet them where they're where they are, where they're at. OK, let's meet there. And your idea of creating a stronger community is actually lending to abolition. So you don't need to jump, make that leap yet, but it, the trail would definitely lead to it. Well, I feel like Aonisis works in um, decriminalizing drugs. So if anyone's familiar with people panicking when you explain what you do. <laughs> I feel like we're talking to an expert. So yeah, I'm sure. sorry. I'm going to let you answer Lee's question. I just. 
No, you're right. When Prop 64 was happening, everybody's like, oh, the kids are all going to be smoking. The fire is going to come down from the skies. And we're like, we're not introducing a new substance. We've just been here for hundreds of thousands of years. We're just trying to regulate it a little bit so we can tax it. And so you know what you're smoking. Uh, but yes, abolition uh, and Measure J. And I, I like to call it a finesse because we are the defund the police people, right? Like that's our goal to dismantle, to defund, to make non-existent. And that is a little bit scary for people. And so that's why it does require a little bit of finesse to talk about, you know, instead of focusing on how we're going to do it, which is defunding the police, like focusing on what we want to see. Like, you know, right now, if you had someone who was suffering from substance use disorder or uh, mental health crisis, do you know somewhere in your community where you can take them no. right now? No, right? You, you, you might call 911. And the response most likely would come after the crisis or harm has happened and most likely will be showing up with the badge and a gun, right? Mm -hmm. Destroying families, separating folks, incarcerating them. That's what the response is now. And also the lack of accessibility to services. The way we talk about it is like, what do we envision in the future when you, you have these you know, moments? Like you, we should be able to have somewhere in our community where you can drive your loved one to right, to get access to service 24-7, we should be able to call a hot, like the 911 number and get a, a life-affirming response to our crisis, right, that looks like maybe psychiatric mobile response teams. We have the largest jail system in the entire world. Most of the folks in there are there because they can't pay bail to get out. Just let people go and give them text reminders. And if they need housing, then let's offer them community-based access to housing. All these things are plans that we've developed with, um, you know, alternatives to incarceration report, the measure JSOF. Like, in order for us to get to abolition, all these dominoes were lining up so that we can create the landscape where we don't need to rely on the jails and don't need to rely on cops. But we are the defund the police people. We just got to finesse it. And abolition for us, the way that we also describe it is ask yourself these questions. Are you leaving anybody behind? Whatever next step or policy move you're going to make. Are you giving more money and more power to the system? Are you building something that we're going to have to go back and destroy in the future? If it's yes to any of those questions, then you should really reconsider your move and policy move because we don't want to leave people behind. We don't want to clean up a mess in the future that we're making now. And we don't definitely want to give more power, and more money to the system. So there's different ways to talk about abolition that we've created so that we can convince, you know, people in power that this is the right move. That's how we were able to cancel the jail contract. You know, you can't get well in a cell. That's how we were able to develop, the, you know, the 115 recommendations and pathway for alternatives to incarceration, aka safety valves to keep people out of the system, keep cops away and get people out once they're in the system. And then measure J to make it happen because the system wasn't going to give us the money. So we need to create a pathway for us to be able to get that money and be able to take it from the people who harm, such as sheriffs, probation, DAs, all of them. Yeah. Again, it's those systems, right. That, that are in place. And I think, I think that that's a big step in just the education and the awareness of our community members. It's like, it, because they know people that are in those fields, right? They know people that are law enforcement. They know people that are in the probation department. They know people that are, that are COs or correctional guard, whatever the case may be, they know people. And I, I think when we start to like separate it, meet them where they are, right? We go after the system. We're not going after the cousin. We're not going after their aunt. We're going after the system and the way that the system is set up and the way that it is operating is Again, we'll say it's designed to operate this way, mm -hmm. but it's 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 coming on the on the backs of all of these other things, oppression, racism, fear, control, power, like all of these things that are not including the rest of the folks. And I think that was a, a key point that you just made is like if people are not benefiting or if we're leaving people behind, 
then it's not the correct solution. And there will be people that'll say like, okay, but yeah, we're making steps in the right direction. We're making, we're, we're knocking down a couple of these dominoes. Yes, it doesn't connect right now. We are going to have to go back and probably do some more tinkering and tweaking. How does that, like with you, Rob, in particular, like when you're faced with those types of questions, like where does that like land with you? Because it's one of the things that I struggle with when I'm actually having a conversation with folks that they're like, they're reformist or, you know, they're, they're transformist or that type of thing. And they're not necessarily bought in on like this, the system and not not tweaking the system. Yeah, I, I I think the first thing you said was it's an issue of education, and I talk about that a lot. You know, the the literacy levels in this country about any serious topic, you know, incarceration, drugs, grief, trauma, and yeah. any of those things, we really just don't know. And I think being honest about the level of non-information we have is probably the most important thing. I know for myself, like I said, I, I came from a, a family that didn't really drink, and I didn't drink myself. I mean. I drink my weight in diet sodas, so it, I'm not, you know, Miss Health Queen over here. But um, I uh, just just didn't drink alcohol, and at the time, my husband was diabetic. I didn't even eat sugar, you know. So there was really no nothing like that in my system, and I learned, you know. I had also never done sex work, and when you're incarcerated in women's prison, you're you're with a lot of sex workers, and you learn, and you learn the nuances of a life that is just a breath away from your own, really. Right. You know, everybody's just a paycheck away from homelessness. Everyone's a couple of better choices or different choices or worse choices, just depending on your scenario from sex work or from drug use or from drug addiction, you know? And when you start realizing how how close we are all packed in this system, it makes it very hard to be willing to leave. There's there's really no such thing as leaving some, somebody behind. You're leaving everybody behind because we're all on the same boat. You know, right. we're all in the same boat. If you say, don't pick up the boat with the drug addicts, well, we're on that boat too. So what, do we just stay here stuck in the middle of the ocean? It's not a reasonable response. It, it's kind of a, it's a natural one. It's an instinctual one. I understand it. We're afraid. We want to make whatever steps we can. But yeah, I just don't see it as a, as a very reasonable thought process. But Eunices, obviously you do this work all the time. What, what, what about you? How do you answer that to people? Why do we not leave people behind? Right. Because we never we haven't gone back to them. There's been laws that have been passed in the last five, six years. Because we haven't gone back for them, right? <laughs> right? It was one of those things that like, it, it almost felt like you rang a bell mm -hmm. in, in the head, right? It, it really does. It's one of those jarring things of like, hold on, we, we haven't gone back for them. You see that in the carceral system all the time. Yes. Go ahead. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I no, want. No, yeah. yeah. And, and, and that, that's really what I answer when folks, because we can ask that question, you know, like, well, what, why not? Why can't we just carve these folks out? Mostly, though, it's around people who have serious or non-serious cases. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's like always fighting for making sure that we don't leave people behind, even if they have serious cases. Like, you don't want to dichotomize one group over another. One group is not deserving of relief more than another group. And so for us, that's why we ask ourselves that question, like, are, are we going to leave anybody behind? And if that's a yes, then we won't do it because then that, that forces us to challenge challenges us to develop a different solution or a different pathway that doesn't require us to leave anybody behind. And I push that very hard because I've worked on bills in the past on sentencing reform where folks have been carved out and we haven't gone back for them. No one talks about going back for those folks. That's what my response is to that. We, there's so many people left behind right now because of those choices of folks 
not wanting to challenge themselves even more to find different pathways. The systems always give you the same response. There's no money, people are violent. And so it's not like they're coming up with anything innovative. So it, that requires us to find different solutions so that we don't leave people behind. Creative work that we do, you know, all of this is, is so creative. And that was one thing I was really struck with um, when I was inside was the creativity of the solutions was like nothing you even see in a university. You know, <laughs> we came up with every possible answer. We, there was a recent Initiate Justice event and Lee and I were trying to put together this thing and there was no rope and we're like grabbing trash bags and making rope out of it. And we're like, this is just some prison stuff right here. <laughs> like yeah. this, no reasonable person is out there trying to make rope out of trash bags you pulled out of a community bag, but it works, you know, the rope holds and uh, the problem is solved. And I saw that all the time inside, just the incredible creativity that people are called to. And they, they rise up to me, you know, because like our systems, like you said, are never going to come up with something more creative. We put the same data in them constantly. You know, it's, it's a lot of rhetoric and it's a lot of old data and they don't have personal experiences to lend to it. And when you put that in a machine, a computer, it's going to come out the same every time, you know, we need, we need non-computer heads on these things. Yeah. And different people that have, have like different experiences with current circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so when we have like the position of power and we have people that are making these decisions, they're like, I think they're coming up with solutions that were tried, you know, many years ago, right. they haven't been effective and they're not effective now. And so again, this is so important that as we continue to develop pathways to solutions to the issues that we're currently faced with, that we have everybody. It's, we have a collective voice at the table and making sure that everybody is like heard. And I really mm -hmm. love the point where if we're going to have to go back for somebody, then it wasn't the correct solution in the first place. Right. And so like, if we can come up with ways to tweak the solution that we've just come up with, then that's not the solution that we want that we just come up with. We want the one that it's, we don't have to, we don't have to step back. You said something, I think in, in one of my notes is like abolition is decriminalization. What does that mean to you? And how, how does that connect for the wider world to be able to be palatable to them? Decrim for folks to know that it's, this, it's decriminalization. It means that you're not going to get a criminal penalty for that particular action. There's also legalization. Like that's what happened with marijuana with Prop 64, legalization and regulation. And so with legalization and regulation, there still exists criminal penalties. There still exists a system of criminalizing folks for the possession, for the distribution of marijuana, even though it's legal, right? And so when we talk about decrim, it's about not criminalizing folks for drug possession, drug use, like being houseless because of drug use. Mm -hmm. So that's what decrim is. Also being able to support people through alternate systems and support. And so it's not replacing like the carceral system with the health system. That's not what we want. We want to create opportunities for people to access services because right now the way that the system exists, you are, let's say you get for whatever case you, you go to and you go to jail you have a problematic substance use disorder you generally have to plead guilty in order to get access to services right which puts you in jail for a while puts a conviction on you and then when you get out you get forced into these programs that are like 12-step programs they're coercive programs that force you into sobriety and they, they those don't work for everybody for the most part they don't and so I've, I've worked at facilities that are reentry facilities for men and women coming out of prison and jail. They were 12-step programs. 
And folks were just falling through the cracks because they weren't being met where they were at. You know, they were forced into staying in places where you're locked up for 30 days and you can't go anywhere. We're going to strip search you even in this residential facility and drug test you. That doesn't do anything for people. The five top charges that drive women, at least in LA County, into jail are all related to substance use or driven by substance use or possession. And so decrim really means not criminalizing folks for drug possession, drug use. And also supporting them with support systems that are harm reduction based, that meet people where they're at and don't require people for their goal to be sobriety. Like the, the journey to sobriety, and I'm, I'm preaching the choir and all, like that's not a linear journey. You know, there's going to be lots of times where folks are going to get bumps in the roads. Those models acknowledge that. And you won't drug test people, right? Like, but you won't throw them away if they start using again. It's like, okay, so what do we need to go back to to help you get back on track? And I think we don't talk enough about harm reduction programs. We talk a lot about 12 steps, but we don't talk about um, how some of those coercive drug treatment programs really lead people to fail and, and don't address the root causes, whether it's trauma or other things that cause people to use substances. And also to say that most people use drugs and they don't have an issue with it. 90% of people that use drugs are okay. They can use drugs and party and fine. It's a small subset of people around 10% that get problematic substance use, that have substance use issues that do impact other aspects of their life. And that's the 10% that we're heavily criminalizing that are, you know, getting incarcerated, not just once in a year, but maybe two, three, five times through that county jail system, right? Um, that we're just failing and cycling and out paying share of salaries to just incarcerate people who, are, who have problematic substance use. You know, I, I get this image in my head um, when we talk about these types of like programs or we talk about these solutions in our communities and even inside when I was inside I used to tell folks they would get so frustrated because they wouldn't get let out for classes or they wouldn't get let mm -hmm. out to go to you know to meet in an area with folks that were dealing with the same types of issues as them and I said you have to look at it in a different way like we are creating space that is making this monster eat itself right it, it cannot be sustainable if we don't give them reasons to make it sustainable mm -hmm. whether it's them like having all these extra unlocks and pat downs and these types of things i said if we can create space to where this system continues to eat itself pretty soon it's going to be starving because it's not being fed the mm -hmm. same types of programs that have kind of led to its development and it, i think it's the same thing with community and the same thing with abolition the more types of community-based solutions that we can come up with, this system is not going to be needed. And what I mean by this system, the system of policing, over-policing, the justice system, it's not going to be needed anymore, right? We're not just going to be able to snap our fingers and wave a wand one day and have this utopian society and community. It's and like you just said, it's not linear, right? There's always things that we're going to need to do in order to create space for folks to be able to be healthy, to be able to heal, and to be able to contribute to their communities in a way that is pro-social and healthy, building a like our vision of what a utopian society kind of looks like. And that mm -hmm. doesn't mean that there isn't ever any types of violation against our social norms and right. our community norms. It means that we deal with it in different ways. Yeah. And to go back to a point that Eunice's made earlier about those robust models already existing, that was probably one of my favorite things about all the Measure J conversation on social yeah. media was hearing all these smaller organizations say like, hey, I've been here 15 years, you know, and I do this on my own dime. Yeah. So if you gave me some real money, 
I could reach this out into the larger community and hearing how much of our community has been stepping up to very specific issues that they know best for all the state criminalization that they get. If they had a fraction of state support, you know, that that would just massively change the efforts. And as it is, they've changed communities. They've changed so many people. You know, there was that meeting about where the, the money for Measure J should go. And it was just it was like overwhelming for me to see just these hundreds of people who are like, I'm doing this work and it's so important and look at my results. And uh, I was just like, look at us. We're all in the same room. They got us all in the same room. It was so exciting. Let's uh, unite and network. Right. right. Let's come together. I mean, that's what things like that yes. do when you, when you can fund them all that, that unites them, that connects them, that brings everybody together. The work is very important. And I, and I love that in those spaces, it's important to note that people don't get left behind. You know, there are groups for every group of people because when you talk to the community, that's how they see people as their community members. Right. If they're serving a life sentence, they, they still belong to the community they belong to. And yeah, I just, I love how we hold them. You know, I just want to emphasize what you both said. Like, it is essentially just cutting off the tunnel of people that use drugs and are involved with drugs into the into the system, right? Obviously, we, in abolitions, we want to do that for everybody. But when we talk about drug decrim, that's really it because we rely so heavily on our jails for people to get access to treatment. There are treatment programs in the community and a lot of them are great. They're, they have, don't have capacity. Some of them are really terrible, like the coercive ones that I've talked about. But it really is like just deleting penal code sections, just deleting them. You don't need to criminalize someone for this. You don't need to give people felonies for this or misdemeanors or even infractions. Just just stop that. And we're going to get there. I'm very hopeful we're going to get there soon. There's just so many things moving on the ground locally that at least in L.A. County is lining up to end the incarceration of a lot of folks. Hey, Nisis, we always we always like to give people time to talk about their projects or ways that we can support. Yeah. Is there... Anything that we can do for you and your work? I mean, we've talked about Measure J. Measure J year one process, that is like three quarters in. Our ask locally is $179 million for year one. The chief executive officer of LA County right now has estimated that she can put in $100 million, but that's going to be really where the fight is. Measure J is amazing. But this process has been one of the most difficult process that I've ever been a part of. The county has tried to finesse us at every single step, has tried to take all of our power and recommendations and money at every single step. So if folks want to plug in, year two of Measure J is starting this year. So I think that uh, if folks want to plug in, that's probably our most critical work happening locally. Also working on repealing three strikes. So there's a coalition there at the state level that I think is bringing in a lot of the pieces that a lot of us have been working on throughout the locally around justice reinvestment. Also like really abolition. Like how do we just delete? Like if you, if you look at the thing, like it's just a lot of deletion of penal code language that exists. So measure J repeal three strikes. And I would say for folks locally in LA to just be on the lookout on how houselessness and how people who are houseless are being addressed right now. I don't know if you have seen what's happened in Echo Park where LAPD just launched a freaking army against people who are houseless there. Um, there's a lot of rhetoric of like, well, if people don't want to go into these housing, they want to go into shelters, then, you know, the, the sheriff is in LA County is now saying, well, I have 2000 beds where we can put people that don't want to go into shelters. But then we like folks don't understand that being in a shelter, like you can still get sexually assaulted in the shelter. Like you can receive a lot of harm there. It's not safe. And there's a lot of policies that make it a carceral setting. Like, you know, they say, oh, these people just don't want to follow the rules. But that's bullshit because your rules are, are inhumane. Your rules are treating people like if they're they're worth nothing. And so 
And that's something I hope folks can look at because that is really the next phase of like how the system is trying to keep its power, how it's trying to keep its money, spending all of its budgets on doing things like this and, and taking away budget that we could have into building alternatives to incarceration. So uh, that's where I'll leave it. That People just stay on the lookout because that's going to be, I think that's something that's going to uh, blow up. It, it'll get worse before it gets better. I just really look forward to see what y'all keep building and just keep sharing you know, different perspectives and different political like visions, because there's a lot that can we can do if we're all on the same page and that the system is not trying to separate us. You've been listening to Abolition is for Everybody, sponsored by Initiate Justice. Be sure to follow us at Abolition is underscore on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for regular updates. To support, please rate and comment wherever you listen to your podcasts. Those five-star ratings help other people find their way to us, so thank you. You can also join us at Abolition Corner on the fourth Tuesday of every month to further your exploration of abolition in a small group. To learn more, please visit initiatejustice.org slash abolition corner.